Hello and welcome to CBS Radio Mystery Theater from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater presents... Come in. Welcome. I'm E.G. Marshall. Many of you may not be familiar with the writings of William Austin, since his main claim to fame is that he was the forerunner of the famous Nathaniel Hawthorne. But it is as sad, in a way, as this haunting tale I bring you, that he should have been so overshadowed by his famous antecedents. For no more poignant and heartbreaking, while at the same time terrifying story could be told than this. The American version of the wandering Jew, condemned and outcast, and the small, shivering, fever-wracked child with the sad brown eyes innocently doomed to share his exile with him forever. Dazzle. What should I be seeing? There, in the center of the cloud. What? An open turret, drawn by a fierce black horse. And a child clinging in terror to the man. There he goes. The storm breathes. Our mystery drama... The Storm Breeder was especially adapted from the classic William Austin story for the Mystery Theater by Ian Martin and stars Michael Tolan and Fred Gwynn. I'll be back shortly with Act One. For the strange, weird, unforgettable fragment of American history brought to you here, we are indebted according to William Austin, to one Jonathan Dunwell of New York. Mr. Dunwell was a judge, and as such, a general officer of the court by profession, but by inclination, an antiquarian and a collector of American history. It is his manuscript we bring to life. In the summer of 1820, business called me to Boston. I sailed in the packet to Providence, and when I arrived there, I learned that every seat in the stage was engaged. I was fortunate enough to find a seat with the driver. It being a pleasant night, and he quite intelligent, we were chatting pleasantly when all of a sudden the horses drew their ears on their necks flat as a hare's, and the whole business of Peter Rugg began. What's the matter with the horses? Have you a shirt too with you? Well, I need no overcoat. My jacket is enough. Uh, you'll need one soon. You see the horse's ears. Well, as a matter of fact, yes. I was just about to ask why. They see the storm breather. The who? Well, you'll find out, sir. Keep your eyes ahead. I am. The road seems empty, and the weather is lovely, not a cloud in the sky. Yeah, but you will see him soon. For the weather that follows will blot out the sun. 
Are you pulling my leg, driver? I wish I were, Mr. Dunwell, sir. Dear sir, wind, wind this bracket about you. But the sun is shining, and Listen I'm very... to what I say. Protect yourself as much as you can. Approaching us was a weather-beaten chair, once built for a shaved body drawn by a great black fiery horse, traveling at least at the speed of 12 miles an hour. Seated in it were a child and a man who glanced at us as he passed in such dejection of spirit and hopelessness that my heart seemed to suspend beating momentarily. In the moment that he passed us, our horse's ears sprang forward and bent so that they nearly met. Who, uh, who was that man? Nobody knows. And the child? Nor her. Though both are familiar to me. I must have passed them more than a hundred times on near as many routes. Without ever exchanging a word? Not a word. In the beginning, he used to stop and inquire the way to Boston, even when he was traveling directly away from the town. But since he never seemed to follow my directions, I have ceased communication with him. So that was the reason for the strange, fixed look he turned on you. It could be. And now he's gone. Disappeared as if neither he nor that frail, shivering child had ever been. Does he never stop anywhere? Never longer than to inquire the way to Boston. I see no signs of this promised storm. Look in the direction from which this man came. The storm follows him. I get you're right. There is a little black cloud speck in the east, but not much more than the size of my hat. Aye, that there's the seed storm. With luck, we may reach Polly's Tavern before it strikes. But to mark my word, the wanderer and his child will go on through rain and thunder and lightning to Providence. To the town we are coming from, you mean? Yes, sir. I would guess the real Providence is as far out of his reach as the Boston. He never seems able to find either. Corrupt that saddle blanket about you. Here it comes. Hey, hey. Did you have? Did you have? Mark you lightning flash. Do you see? My eyes are dazzled. What do you mean? Watch as it comes again. There. In the center of a cloud. What? Don't you see? An open carriage drawn by a black horse. And the child clinging in terror to the man. Now look. Do you see? I see nothing but the lightning and the boiling blackness of the cloud. No matter, perhaps as well for you. The whole past, we go full out. Hey! Did you have to move and move? Within a few minutes, we had broached a rise and sliding and slithering came down into the hollow to Polly's tavern. In spite of the summer weather, a steam of damp arose from our clothes and those of other travelers. And the whole common room seemed to be awash with discussion of the storm breeder, whom almost all of them seemed to have met on the road. Ah, the name is Darlington of Boston in the import-export trade. Uh, Jonathan Dunwell, recently seated as judge in our circuit courts. Bound from New York to your fair city. Well, sir, my pleasure and privilege to meet so distinguished a gentleman. 
I'm afraid your city is fast surpassing ours in credit and notoriety. Not entirely, sir. I'm afraid a citizen of your city is the focus of all conversation tonight. The storm breeder. Did you chance on him? No, as it happens, not today. But too many times. Too many times? I could wish to see neither that man nor his horse again. For they seem not to belong to this world. Well, how's that? I saw them plain, father and daughter, passing us on the road. Uh, Did you speak? No. I have seen him wet and weary many times before tonight. And no one who has ever once seen him can ever be deceived again as to his identity. You know him by name? Yes, sir. Peter Rugg. Peter Rugg. But who is this mysterious man? Ah, that is more than anyone can tell exactly, save that he is a famous traveler, though held in low esteem by all inholders, for he never stops to eat, drink, nor sleep. (laughs) But why does the man never stop anywhere, long enough to speak to anyone at least? By those who know the most about him, say the least. It is asserted that sometimes heaven sets a mark on a man for judgment or for trial. I'm thinking of the one time Rugg spoke to me. I was in Connecticut, time, on a winding road, my horse as weary as myself. It was toward dusk, and all of a sudden, from behind me, traveling that reckless clip for those roads, a fiery black horse pulling an open chaise caught up to me from behind. Tell me how far it is to Boston. One hundred miles. One hundred? How can you say so? I was told last night it was but fifty, and I have traveled all night. Problem is, sir, you are traveling from Boston. You must turn back. How can you tell me so? It is all turned back. Boston shifts with the wind. One man tells me it is to the east, the other west. You were the guidepost. All points the wrong way. I think perhaps you're tired. And your little girl, too. Why not stop and rest? You're wet and weary. Yes. Foul weather since I left home. Stop then up ahead of the inn and refresh. No, no, I cannot stop. Do you see what follows me? I must ever stay ahead of it. So I must reach home tonight. I... I pray you are mistaken in the distance. To Boston. I wish I were. May I, uh, may I make some bold as to inquire if you are Peter Rugg? I think we've met before. My name is Rugg. I meet so many. Uh, I have lost my way. I am wet and weary. I would take it kindly if you would direct me to Boston. Where do you live in Boston? On what street? Why, Middle Street. Everyone knows the house. With the great shade maple. Across from the cemetery. When did you leave Boston? I... I I cannot tell precisely. It seems a considerable time. What, sir? How did you and your child become so wet? It has not rained in these parts today. Uh, the shower caught me back on the road a piece. It always catches me. 
unless I keep moving. Moving. Uh, would you advise me to take the old road or the turnpike? Oh, why? The old road is over 120 miles. The turnpike for 97. You impose on me. It, it is wrong to trifle with a traveler. You know it is only some 40 miles from Newburyport to Boston. But this is not Newburyport. This is Hartford. Well, do not deceive me, sir. Is not this river I have been following, the Merrimack? Oh, no, sir. You are just outside Hartford. And this river is the Connecticut. Have the rivers changed their courses? Has the cities their places? Am I forever... But again, the clouds are gathering, and the storm is at my heels. God curses me for that fatal road. He will talk no longer. His impatient horse leaped off, his flanks rising like wings. And that's the last time I saw the ill-fated Mr. Rock. Amazing. But you say he gave his address as Middle Street. That is correct, Mr. Uh, I should say Judge Dunwell. The house with the great maple shade tree across from the cemetery. So he said. Do you know Boston well enough to locate it? Oh, no, sir. And my business seldom carries me that way. But mine does. I think for curiosity's sake I must go to Peter Rugg's home. I tried to find out why it is so difficult to return to. Twenty years, you said, you've been seeing him on the road. Oh, all of that. And the last was the only time we spoke. I should like to meet the man face to face. If for no other reason than to find a better fate for that little girl long since turned woman. When I get to Boston, I shall make it my first order of business. is exactly what I did. It was not easy, for the maps were inaccurate, and there was more than one middle street. But finally I found it, the great tree smothering the house so that it lay in a shadowy gloom. The paint was peeling, the windows cracked and cobweb-ridden, but the path to the door was cleared, and I was sure that someone or something still lived there. It was with a strange trepidation I walked through the weeds and lifted the heavy knocker. At last, with a deep breath, I let it fall. Then, in utter silence, bathed in the shadowed gloom, I waited to meet whatever waited behind that door.
Dunwell was never fated to have an answer to his knock on the door. For in the very moment that something old stirs and rustles within the house, outside it, the small noises are smothered by the arrival of the familiar black chaise and the snorting, prancing steed that draws it. of the arrival, instinctively I had withdrawn deeper in the shadows, finding perfect concealment behind a clump of overgrown rhododendra. Twilight was just upon us. As a confident and somehow younger man than I remembered Peter Rugg to be, strode up the path, just in time for the door to open. The little girl sat timid and immobile on the seat of the carriage, as if knowing the hopelessness of it all. Somewhere, low thunder grumbled. Mistress Rugg, your husband is sorry to have been delayed, but circumstances beyond... Uh, I... I beg your pardon, madam, but I'm looking for Mistress Catherine Rugg. Who? Who did you say? My wife, madam. The Mistress Rugg. Oh, Lord bless you, sir. She ain't here. Ain't been here in this world for 50 years. What do you mean? I mean she's dead and gone like all birds. Dead and gone and buried and lost. But that can't be. I'm, uh, I'm tired and worn, but this... Uh, I know my own house. I live here. Oh, no, you don't. Not now you don't, whoever you are. I can show you deed and title which says that it's mine. It is true. It seems as though it might be on the wrong side of the street. I I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to... Uh, forgive me, madam. I'm confused. Everything seems misplaced. The streets change. The people change. The, the town changed. And what is strangest of all, Catherine Rugg has deserted her husband and child. Oh, pray tell me, has John Foy come home from sea? Who? John Foy, my kinsman. He could give me some account of Mrs. Rugg. I never heard of John Foy. Where does he live? Just above here on Orange Tree Lane. Oh, bless you for a stranger. No such place in this neighborhood. But that can't be possible. The street's gone. Orange Lane is not the head of Hanover Street near Bamberton's Hill. There is no such lane now. You, you cannot be serious. Woman, you mock me. The next thing you will tell me is that there is no King George. However, be that as it may, you must see, madam, that both my daughter and myself are wet and weary. I, I must find a resting place. Can you direct me to Boston? But this is Boston. The only city of Boston I know. But not the one I know. Yes, Lightfoot, coming, coming. I am wrong, of course. I don't know how I could have mistaken it, but this is a much finer city than Boston. Boston must lie at a distance, my good woman, since you are ignorant of it. Yes. It's the same old story. No home tonight. I must away. 
No. Mr. Ross, wait. Wait. Who are you, sir? Oh, a thousand pardons, Mrs. Croft. May I... May I present myself, Judge Jonathan Dunwell of the Circuit Courts, but recently come to Boston. A judge? Have you some business with that man? Not legal business, but I had hoped to meet him here and question him. I am obsessed with a desire to know exactly who and what he is. I'm ashamed for allowing you to stand so long in the rain. Come in and warm yourself by my fire. May I offer you some more sherry, Your Worship? No, no. You are more than kind to have given me what I have against the chill. Heaven help that poor man in an open carriage. And that child beside him. And the child. That a man named Rugg once owned this house is all I know. The factor who arranged for my father to take it over is supposed to have made sure all papers are legal. How I wish I could have stopped him, learned more about him, tried to solve the mystery of him. The mystery of him? Well, I cannot help there, but I should think the factor who sold us this house should know more of him than anyone, if he is still alive. Could you give me his name and address? I shall not rest till I have followed this strange affair to its depths and its beginnings. I do indeed, Mr. Felt. You you know the history of Peter Rugg, sometime of Middle Street in this district? Uh, yeah. I, I will be brief. He rented a property of mine in his youth. He was married to a fine young woman who bore him a, a, a daughter, as I remember. Jenny. So I believe was the name. With no matter, an offspring... And then, without so much as a by your leave, he ran off with the child, leaving the wife to die, as I believe or remember. Yes, 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 yes. She, she died. Why? Well, damn it, she was deserted. Fortunately, Rugg left no creditors. He owned his horse and chaise, and after she died, it was all soon forgotten. alive and living. I have lately seen him and his horse and chaise and his child. Oh, is that so? That's so. Well, now, I wouldn't presume to argue with a man of your standing that Peter Rugg could still be alive. I, I will not deny, but Jenny Rugg, if you saw her, I've seen her, the, the, the Boston Massacre was 17 I fortunately avoided it, but history records that date. So, on that date, Jenny was ten years of age. And if living, that would make her, let's see, sixty, sixty now, give or take a year. Do you know what you're saying? <laughs> if Peter Rugg is still alive, which I take is possible, he could be only ten years older than myself. And I was only... Eighty last March. 
realized that Mr. Felt was in his dotage. So despairing of gaining any further intelligence from him, I returned to my lodgings at the Marlboro Hotel. If Peter Rugg, I thought to myself, has been traveling since the Boston Massacre, there is no reason I can see now that he shouldn't travel to the end of time. And I might have left it there had I not descended to the tap room for a nightcap and there encountered Mr. Derwin. I ran up against a man whose grandfather knew our elusive friend, Mr. Rugg, and can now tell you the whole story, such as it is. Then by all means begin. It seems that if my informant is worthy of credit, Peter Rugg, a man in comfortable circumstances, with one daughter and a wife, lived in Boston on Middle Street. He was a man generally esteemed, save for one thing. Don't keep me on tenterhooks. What? An ungovernable temper. So violent that the wig would rise from his head. And while his fits were upon him, he had no respect for heaven or earth. A sorry spectacle. Some of it hard to believe. Less hard to believe than his punishment for it. Well, what does that mean, sir? Well, whilst visiting in Concord one day late in autumn with his daughter in the chaise, drawn by his favorite horse, a great black beast named Lightfoot, a tremendous storm overtook them, driving them for shelter as dark fell under the roof of a friend of his, Mr. Cutter, who urged him to tarry the night, which any man in his right senses under the circumstances would do. And he did not heed his pleas? Far from a judge. Instead... The veins standing out on his neck and at his temples, he screamed to high heaven. Let the storm increase. Let God and the devil wreck their worst. I will see hope tonight, or never see it more. And with that, he clapped whip to his horse disappeared into the raging night. Never to return home? Never. Incredible. There wasn't that. Supernatural. Why? The man is a cursed. Whether by God or, or by the devil, I know not which. Still 50 years of wandering in search of his home. How could it be possible? Well, now, as to that, there are two theories. One I heard from my informant. His grandfather said that on the day after he left Concord 50 years ago, his friends and neighbors started inquiries. But it appeared that Peter Rugg had stayed no place in Boston. His wife had a strange tale. What tale is that? Sitting by the window, waiting on that wild night, there was a sudden sound like an earthquake. And indeed, the whole house rumbled underneath her as if about to cave in. Peering out through the storm, she saw a strange sight. What sight was that? Coming hell for leather down the street was Peter Rugg in his carriage, straining back on the reins in a vain effort to stop his horse and crying, No, I could know! You be damned for the devil you are! Hold up, my face! We are home! Hold up, my 
Joseph, his head the bit between his teeth and would not stop. Yes. But there were those who discount the story, saying merely that Peter Rugg wanted to leave his wife and never come home at all. That there was another woman somewhere. That scarcely fits the facts as we know them. Well, then, there is the other theory. Which is? Perhaps best told by the woman who had the experience. Now, she's the wife of the toll gatherer on the Charlestown Bridge. Would you care to hear her tale for yourself? Well, sirs, it's many years ago by now. My old man has gone to his rest. Lord save him who could spare me out. In those days, we were both young and spry, and many's the evening I used to keep him company here for Tollgate. Those days were when? Oh, I under 50 years ago. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to have interrupted. Go on with your story. But I, I remembered how annoyed Ethan was by this big black horse and the chaise and the man and the little girl used to tell me how they continually were in contempt of the race crossing the bridge without stopping or paying. And were they always followed by bad weather? Why, bless you, sir, that is the truth. My Ian used to say they brought bad luck. And you say you saw them? One evening we heard them thundering up, and I said, this time they ain't going to take it out on you, Ethan. You're too easy going. So when he called them to halt, and they kept on. I had grabbed up a three-legged stool, heavy it was, but I was young and strong, and I hurled it square into the horse's belly. And tell the judge what happened then. It passed right through that horse, as if it were a shatter. He never even broke stride, and the stool went skipping across the bridge. No, sir. That was a haunt. A ghost rider with bad luck riding the dust of his wheels. So, Judge Dunwell, what is your judgment? I don't know. Neither explanation fits the pattern of my mind. And I have a feeling that I am not yet done with Peter Rugg. Nor will be till his fate is truly revealed to me. And the judge's instinct was right. Neither he nor we are yet done with the haunting tale of Peter Rugg, the man or ghost who wanders so hopelessly in search of home and rest. I'll return shortly with Act Three. It was to be five years before Peter Ruggs and Judge Dunwell's paths crossed again. For some time, the judge had tried to track down the sometimes elusive person or legend, whichever he was. Then, being only human... Peter Rugg had almost passed from his mind until, until 
the rest of the judge's story, which you are about to hear now. In the autumn of 1825, I attended the races at Richmond and Virginia. There was great excitement and the races were well attended, for it was a match race between two recognized champions, a roan called Dart and a light gray mare called Butterfly. At a signal, the gun sounded, and they were off. I was glued to the race. There seemed no way of choosing which horse might win. When suddenly there was an extra wave of excitement from the already madly cheering crowd. To my open-mouthed astonishment, appearing as if from nowhere in the rear, was a majestic black horse of unusual size, drawing an old weather-beaten chair. Effortlessly, as if his heavy non-racing vehicle, encumbered as it was by two occupants, didn't exist, he overtook the racing horses shortly before the winning line. And in concert, both Dot and Butterfly, as the horse passed them, lay back their ears and pulled up short, so that no contest was called. And the winning black horse and his carriage passed the finish line and faded away over the hill. In the clubhouse later, I was fortunate enough to have an introduction to one John Spring, the owner and rider of Butterfly. Jimmy, sir, that was no horse that overtook my mare. No one can outrun Butterfly. No horse, that is. Why, I had bet all I have she would show her heels to Dorf. No doubt she would if the Good horse, make no mistake. Good horse would start a great one. But not outrun my Butterfly. That, that ox or whatever animal it was that frightened off our horses. Why, that, that makes no contest, sir. No contest. And yet it looked like a horse. In no fashion, sir. Nor was it. In no fashion. And that I can prove. How is that, Mr. Spring? By my own observation and countless others, sir. Would you like to see? I would indeed. Well, then, follow me. Now, you remember? Yes, about here, both of them pulled up and let that interloper go by and disappear. Yes, the, the view is unfamiliar from this point, but I, I do remember it was shortly before the finish line. Exactly, sir. Both horses have to pull them up, walk deliberately to this spot of soft ground. Butterfly dropped her head and then lifted it, wickering and fried. Dart followed by doing the same and snorting in a sort of anger. All of us looked to what they had examined. See you then there for yourself, Judge. I was looking at the hoof marks of the black horse which had carried on to the finish line and beyond. Horse? From the evidence of my eyes from the stands, yes. From the same evidence as I looked at the soft ground... Mr. Spring's strange claim had real validity. These were not the marks of a horse's hooves, but the evidence of another breed of animal or being. The hooves were cloven. Judge Dunwell. Mr. Derwin, your business takes you far afield. In the nature of things. Not like what happened today at the races. You saw? Oh, yes. 
I was stunned, weren't you? I thought Peter Rock had vanished. Oh, no, not either. In the years since we met, I have come across him time and again. And gotten soaked to the skin because of him. In New Hampshire, Connecticut, Massachusetts. And the last time, but shortly, in Delaware. Have you spoken? The last time only. Tell me, if you will, what took place. Well, sir, on his approach, he checked his horse with some difficulty. A more beautiful horse I'd never seen. Sir, your face seems familiar. Perhaps I may engage your help. If you are, as may be, traveling to Boston, I should be glad to accompany you, for I have lost my way. My little girl here is weary, and I must reach home tonight. Ah, that would be impossible, sir. For you are in Concord, in the county of Sussex, which is in the state of Delaware. But Concord, that is only 20 miles from Boston, and my horse Lightfoot could carry me to the Charlestown Ferry in less than two hours. Uh, You mistake, sir. You are a stranger here. I am well acquainted with Concord, and this town is nothing like it. Because this is Concord in the state of Delaware. Huh? Uh, What do you mean by state? Why, one of the United States, man. States? Do you mock me? Because my heritage is Dutch? I know well I am not in Holland. As a gentleman, I beg you not to mislead me. Tell me, quickly, for pity's sake, before my horse swallows its bit, he is so starved. Set me on the right road for Boston. If I could, and I did... It would be 500 miles from here. 500 miles, you say? Nay, I will listen no more. This beats the Connecticut River. Get up, my foot. Get up. I can explain his last mark. I met him, as you may remember, outside Hartford when he persisted in mistaking the Connecticut River for the Charles. So our wandering homeseeker is still abroad. Man or spirit, I shall not rest until he can. But how to help him? The courts were closed until the winter session. It seemed to me that the judgment on Peter Rugg was too great. Too inhumane, too unreasonable for the extent of his small crime. I made it my business wholly for once to try to catch him again. But I always seem fated to be just too late. At the toll gate on the turnpike between Alexandria and Middleburg, he had passed and paid no toll. But the toll gatherer was grateful for he brought rain behind him to relieve a drought. Back in Virginia at the toll bridge, an irate gatekeeper told me that annoyed by the number of times Rugg had passed that way refusing to pay, he had stood in the way of the vehicle and it had passed right through him or over him without so much as touching him. On the ferry boat across the Hudson, a Mr. Hardy who collected fares showed me a fare that a man had given him insisting it was 30 shillings. It might have been once. It was a half-crown, coined by the British Parliament, dated 1649. 
Then I knew I had caught up with Peter Rugg again at last. I found him in his rig at the bow of the boat. Greetings, Mr. Rugg. Huh? Oh, yes. You seem familiar, sir. Judge Dunwell, we have met on the road before. Yeah, that could be possible, sir. May I say that since you are a stranger here, my house is your home. Uh, Dame Rod will be happy to see her husband's friend. Uh, step into my chair, sir, if you will. Uh, move over, Jenny, for the great man. We shall be in Middle Street very shortly. For many reasons, I will take advantage of your kind invitation. I sneaked a glance at my companions. Both were dressed in incredibly old-fashioned garments of fine cloth, but showing great wear. Rug himself, at least in the face, was little more than skin drawn over the skull and cheekbones. Jenny was so bundled up she suggested only to my sad and horrified eye what her wizened, dried-out face proclaimed. A small Egyptian mummy. Only Lightfoot looked bigger, sleeker, and more magnificent than ever. Uh, this is not Boston, sir. Then, mayhap it is New York. <laughs> How can it be New York, sir, when that place is 200 and more miles from Boston? But I, I thought I was home. Mr. Rudd, look to the west. Only the size of a blackberry now, but that looks like an angry storm on our trail. Ah, it is in vain to escape. I know that cloud. It brings no wrath to spend on my head. Go now, kind stranger, whoever you are. Leave me to my fate. No, not this time, Peter Rudd. Give me the reins. This time, perhaps, we can outrun the storm. I took them from his slack hand, sliding over him and pushing him back to huddle with his daughter. And it needed only one flick to send that strange horse on his way like the wind. As we careened around the first corner, I noticed that his front hooves had been split on some hard road somewhere, but were healing. So Mr. Spring had been at least half right about the cloven hooves. I remembered little of that nightmare ride for Boston. How many days passed, where we stayed, or ate or slept. I only know that no matter how fast we traveled, that mushrooming black cloud stayed on our heels every step of the way. And then at last, we were in Boston. On Middle Street. A crowd was gathered. The great elm still stood, although barren now of leaves, fire blackened. And all that remained of the house was a heap of rubble. All else burnt to the ground, as I knew it to be. For the fire had taken place two years before. You men of the North End, this is holy ground. The city needs this land. And let not the name of Peter Rock dampen your ardor. No! I hold renting title to this place. No, hush, Mr. Rugg. Listen for a moment longer. Let no man tried to tell you that Peter Rugg is long since dead and gone to his reward. Let not legend makers seek the right and title to this land which is free and clear. But how can this be? Who has burned my house to the ground? And who are all these strange people? I, I thought I knew every man in Boston, but I do not recollect at this moment that I ever saw one of these. Who are these strangers? Listen to me, Peter Rugg. 
the only stranger here is you. You have suffered many years under an illusion. Look, look behind. The cloud, the storm. Your nemesis is gathering. Then I must flee. Away from home again. No, if you do, you have no home. If I stay, there is none left. Don't you see that for over 50 years, the tempest which you so profanely defied at monotony has driven you before it like a straw in the wind. And now it is too late. Your wife, your house, and all your neighbors have disappeared. You have no home left here. You've been cut off from one age, and you can never be fitted to the present. You can never have another home again in this world, you or your daughter, unless... Yes. Quickly, for the storm is almost upon us. Unless what? Unless you stop fleeing it. Let it catch up with you and perhaps pass you by. Then mayhap at long last you can find rest. Oh, rest. Sweet, blessed rest. Oh, my father, forgive me. And take me and Jenny home. The great black clouds and teeming rain engulfed us all. My last view of Peter Rugg was standing with his arm about his daughter. His face lifted to the rain. And wonder of wonders, at last the child's head, too, was lifted. In the intensity of it, they were lost. And suddenly the storm passed. For a moment, in its last fringe, I saw the two of them, eyes on heaven. And then, as if they had never been, chaise, horse, harness, father and daughter were gone. Where? I do not know. I can only hope home at last. Judge Dunwell lived out a long and fruitful life, dying quietly in his bed one night. We do not know what his last thoughts were, but certainly one of them must have been that in all the last 40 years of his life, he never again met or heard of Peter Rugg. There is no one more tragic in all history or literature than the soul condemned to wander. do have to wonder a little if Peter Rugg didn't make his own penance. What we fear in life we should not run from, especially if we can't outdistance it. Turn and meet it face to face. It's surprising that the reality is never as bad as the imagined. Our cast included Michael Tolan, Fred Gwynn, Anne Petoniak, Arnold Moss, and Ian Martin. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams.